This week, a promising new Ebola therapy. We're certainly hoping that this will translate to protecting infected humans. And could bees be hooked on pesticides? It could be that they could potentially be addicted to these compounds. Plus the making of the Tibetan plateau and the role of thieving rivers. This is The Nature Podcast for April the 23rd, 2015. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. First, pesticides spell double trouble for bees, as Marion Turner has been finding out. You can thank a bee for winning every three bites of food you take. Bees and other pollinators are the buzzing backbone of our crop industry. They're important both for for crop pollination, uh, so for fruits, nuts, uh, coffee, things like that, and also for wider um, biodiversity, for maintaining wild plant species, so they're really important. This is bee expert Nigel Rain of the University of Guelph in Canada. But all is not sunny in the land of the pollinators. Rain and others have plenty of evidence that bees are in trouble. There are fewer bees and they're less widespread and this could be problematic because of the pollination services they provide to crops and wildflowers. Many things may contribute to bee declines, but several studies have pointed the finger at a class of pesticide called neonicotinoids. They've been used since the 1980s to treat plants from the seed up. Once you treat the seeds, the pesticide spreads throughout the growing plant, including their nectar and pollen. That means they get into what bees eat. Here's neuroscientist Geraldine Wright from Newcastle University in the UK. Once they've consumed the stuff, they have problems with motor function, they have problems with olfactory memory, they can't collect pollen and bring it back to the colony so they can feed on it. I mean, at least that's what these other studies have shown, is that they they just cease to bring pollen back. A couple of years ago, alarmed by results like this, the EU restricted the use of neonicotinoids. But the evidence is still debated. Some studies have shown no effects or only effects on certain types of bee. And some sceptics say that lab studies don't reflect what bees really do out in the field. This week, two new studies add to the evidence base. One is a big field study to see if the lab results still hold at an ecologically relevant scale. The other reveals something altogether more sinister about these chemicals. First, the field tests. Here's Nigel Rain again, who has written about the study for Nature, but wasn't involved in the research. The Rundloff et al. paper is really interesting for a number of reasons. Firstly, uh, the scale of the experiment is much larger than, um, than any of the others that have been published to date of this type. The authors compared 16 fields of oilseed rape, half planted with neonicotinoid-treated seeds and half without. They also use different types of bee. And they put out into these fields, they put honeybee colonies at each site, they put commercial bumblebee colonies, um, and they also put solitary bees, so bee pupae out. And they followed the behaviour, the development and the reproduction of these different species. Honeybees can fly several kilometres, whereas solitary bees only roam a few hundred metres. And, as their name suggests, they don't form colonies. The authors thought they might respond differently to the pesticides. And sure enough, they did. They found measurable impacts on on bumblebee colony um, growth and also reproduction. The number of um, new queens and males that were produced by colonies next to treated fields were significantly lower. The study also found that solitary bees did badly with the pesticides. Female bees who had fed on the treated crops didn't reproduce properly. But not all bees reacted quite like this. Honeybees seemed relatively unaffected. 
and they're the ones that are usually used as the test bee for chemicals. The fact that they have different responses to, this, to the same potential exposure to, to pesticide is, is quite, is quite um, a concern. I think there will also be question marks about how this varies across um, landscape types and different agricultural systems. But maybe bee ecologists are worrying too much. Perhaps bees simply avoid pollen and nectar that contain neonicotinoids. The chemicals have a nasty, bitter taste, so it was thought that bees would steer clear. Here's Geraldine Wright again, an author on the second paper published this week. It's funny, I I was looking through a lot of the literature and I realised that most of the work that was done really focused on the chronic administration of these pesticides to bees. I'm not sure that there was really a lot of work done on the acute effects. To test how the bees react to neonicotinoids, Geraldine and her colleagues gave bees a choice between a plain sugar solution or one containing a neonicotinoid. They found that not only were the bees not avoiding the laced food, they actually preferred it. When Aaron Joe sent me this, this data in the beginning, I was just like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. We then pursued it in my lab to um, a much greater extent. So we've just basically replicated all of these experiments um, with all three of those neonicotinoids in Bombus, the bumblebee, and also in honeybees. But Geraldine's team also found that the bees couldn't taste any difference between the food. Their taste neurons reacted the same to both solutions. So how did they know where to go back to for more? Neonicotinoids, um, the word is, it means new, uh, nicotine compound. And as you know, um, nicotine is a very special compound. Um, it, one of its modes of action, right, is to activate nicotinergic acetylcholine receptors. And one of the reasons that we get addicted to nicotine is because we have these kinds of receptors in our brain. Our work is indicating that bees also have these kinds of receptors in the neurons in their brains which are involved in reward. And it could be that, indeed, um, they could potentially be addicted to these compounds, but we haven't shown that in this study. So the bees are getting a buzz from these chemicals, which in turn are very damaging. In the EU, neonicotinoid seed treatments are banned on flowering crops right now. But that's up for revision at the end of this year. And in North America and other parts of the world, there are no restrictions. Here's Nigel again. Pollinators provide or, or provide a massive service that we, 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 we underestimated our peril particularly those in uh, wild pollinators that have kind of always been there and always been pollinating our crops. And now if we're stressing them and really challenging them and they are struggling, we may start to see serious pollination um, deficits in crops, which means that we won't be able to grow food as effectively. That was Nigel Rain and before him Geraldine Wright. The two studies we talked about, the field study of pesticides and the lab-based taste test, are at nature.com slash nature where you can also find the news and views by Nigel and a colleague. Coming up in the research highlights, octopus disco and some very diverse gut bugs. But first... The Ebola outbreak in West Africa may finally be subsiding, but it's inflicted a terrible cost. Over 25,000 people have been infected, almost half of whom have died. There are no good Ebola drugs or vaccines available and ready to use in the affected countries. So for most victims, little can be done beyond replacing fluids and hoping the immune system does its job. But scientists are not standing idly by. They're scrambling to develop treatments. In August last year, a new drug, ZMAP, was shown to be able to save Ebola-infected monkeys. Erica Czech-Hayden spoke with us about ZMAP last September. 
there is no more ZMAP available. The existing supplies of the drug were used to treat seven people who were infected with Ebola in this outbreak. They're working really hard. Obviously, they want this drug to be used. Uh, it's just not an easy process uh, to make these, these types of purified antibodies. While efforts push forward to increase ZMAP production and test its safety for use in humans, a second potential treatment has been announced. The mechanism is quite different. It's based on interfering with the virus's genetic code. It's the work of a team led by Thomas Geisbert of the University of Texas Medical Branch. Believe it or not, I've, I've been working on Ebola since 1988. It's, 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 been, it's been challenging, frustrating and rewarding all at the same time. You investigated treatment which works in a very different way to ZMAP uh, using short interfering RNAs. How do siRNAs work to fight the Ebola virus? So in layman's terms, the mRNA for the virus is, is kind of like the, the genetic blueprint or the recipe for how to make the virus. And the siRNAs basically interfere uh, with that process and, and keep the virus from making competent virus particles. How have you tested the potential of siRNAs to look at Ebola? So we, we targeted these two particular genes with small interfering RNAs. We first did this in cell culture showing that we could inhibit or block the growth, slow the growth of Ebola in cell culture. And then we had done some earlier work, some pilot studies in non-human primates uh, showing that, that we, could, we could protect them when administered shortly after challenge. Uh, this particular study goes a lot farther and shows that um, you can protect even when you administer them as late as day three after exposure. And that's when animals uh, start, when you first see the clinical onset of illness, so when, when the virus is first detected in the blood. So this would kind of mimic a case when somebody first is feeling bad, comes in uh, to be looked at, you know, blood is drawn and you detect the virus. So how effective do siRNAs seem to be at protecting monkeys from dying from Ebola? Uh, we protected 100% of the animals in this particular study, so all the animals were protected. Uh, when we administered the siRNAs three days after we exposed them to a very high dose of Ebola, a lethal dose, um, we're certainly hoping that this will translate to you know, protecting infected humans. How translatable do results like this tend to be when we start taking them to humans? Non-human primates tend to be the best models for human diseases, particularly acute viral infections like Ebola. And in most cases, we would say that probably much greater than 90% chance that this would work, but not 100%. There's nothing, again, that's, that's that definitive. Based on the non-human primate studies, how effective is this treatment compared to the existing treatment, ZMAP? This particular treatment and ZMAP are, I guess, uh, if you look at post-exposure protection against Ebola, head and shoulders above the field. Could both be used side by side, or would there be no benefit to doing that? If you're familiar with the HIV field, how when a lot of the successes first occurred, it was when, um, you know, when they started combining different antiviral drugs that, that had different mechanisms of action. And so we actually are planning to combine the Tecmira siRNAs with the ZMAP to see if we can um, even push the window out further. What are the main advantages of this treatment relative to ZMAP? So every time you have an outbreak, there could be slight changes in, in the strain of virus. Those sequence changes could render your treatment less effective or non-effective depending on where that particular change occurred. 
it takes a lot longer to produce antibodies and to generate antibodies than it does to, to generate siRNA. So, I mean, you're talking months and months and months if you had to go back and redesign your antibodies, or you're talking more weeks when you, if you're talking about redesigning an siRNA. What would you say the next steps are before we could see drugs that use siRNA in the field and being used in West Africa? Fortunately, the outbreak is, it appears to be slowing down. Um, so I'm not sure that with this particular outbreak, there will be enough cases to, to use these particular siRNAs to draw any definitive cl- conclusions. But I think in, in terms of compassionate use, we're, we're at a point where they are starting to be used. The media attention that has been given to this outbreak, uh, if there was a silver lining in, in this particular outbreak, it was that uh, you know some of these technologies now um, have some of the funding, not all of the funding, but some of the funding which was lacking before the outbreak. That was Thomas Geisbert discussing his research on Ebola. Find the paper at nature.com forward slash nature. The Tibetan plateau is not what it seems. That's coming up after the research highlights with Noah Baker. Octopuses are truly bizarre creatures, from their almost entirely squidgy bodies to their distributed nervous system. Well, it turns out they even crawl weirdly. By studying videos of octopuses crawling about, researchers have shown that they don't face the direction of travel, they look in a random direction while they're on the move. What's more, there's no consistent pattern or rhythm to their movement. Instead, they just decide as they go along which arm should do what. Just like I do when I'm dancing. For the paper, see Current Biology. An isolated Amazonian tribe who were first contacted just six years ago have the most diverse gut microbiome ever seen. It's twice as varied as the average Americans. Other remote populations in Papua New Guinea also show great variety, and so scientists think the bacterial bonanza is probably down to the lower levels of sanitation and water treatment available to these communities. Oddly, in spite of having no exposure to Western medicine, the tribe's bacteria still contain some genes for antibiotic resistance. For more, see Science Advances and Cell Reports. Sometimes called the roof of the world, the Tibetan plateau has a bit of a geological peculiarity. It's flat. Normally flat or low-relief landscapes like this are found close to sea level, but the Tibetan plateau has perched 4,500 metres up. Most geographers believe that the plateau was formed close to sea level and then quickly pushed up by tectonic activity. But Sean Willett and his team from the ETH in Zurich didn't think this explanation stacked up. Instead, they suspect that reorganising rivers may be creating these landscapes in situ. Geography nerd Emily Bannum gave Sean a call and started by asking what the landscape in the region is like. Well, this is a very interesting physical geography. This is a mountainous area that extends from the Tibetan Plateau down to the southeast into the provinces of uh, Sichuan and and, uh, Yunnan, China. And it's, uh, although it's mountainous, it's characterized by these very large rivers that have cut big gorges through the, through the region. These are the Salwane, the Mekong, and the Yangtze rivers. And in addition to these deep gorges, there are then these high perched valleys that sit up at, at elevations three, 4,000 meters above sea level. And these valleys are quite flat or low relief. And they're just sitting perched between these uh, deep gorges and high mountains, and, uh, which, which ends up making a very unusual physical landscape. 
how is it previously thought that these elevated plateaus were formed? The classical argument has been that these must have formed at low elevation. This is the common view for, for physical geographers who've looked at uh, the evolution of mountain ranges, is that low relief, flat areas tend to form near to sea level. These represent the latest stages of, of mountain building when the old mountain ranges like the Caledonians or the Appalachians that have been worn down to sea level. And when we see such a landscape then up at 3,000 meters, the argument has always been that these must have been recently uplifted quickly enough that the rivers have not yet reincised them and formed the high relief like we might see in the Himalayas. So uh, what made you suspect that something else was going on here? If uh, this were true, if the whole region were uniformly uplifted, we should see sort of uniform incision of the, of the rivers into these high valleys. And what we found was that there was no systematic pattern to the, to the incision of the rivers surrounding these, these high valleys. What did you do to investigate this a bit more? We inferred that each of these high valleys must have a, a unique source or a, 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 at least a unique history. And so we've uh, worked out this idea that perhaps these have formed uh, in situ, meaning they formed at the elevations that we find them at today, and that their characteristics of low relief and the low erosion rates and so on must have developed uh, uh, sort of one by one in these valleys. And in this paper, you suggest that the culprit for this is a process called river capture, sometimes called stream piracy. Could you explain what this is and how you think it's working in this case? This region uh, is, is really dominated by the continental collision between India and Asia. And as that crust, get, crust gets pushed, it gets deformed, and the rivers that are sitting on top of it are deformed. And what can happen in this case is that one river can get pushed up very close to another river, and in fact it can capture it. That is, the entire one river is rerouted into the other river. And this is sometimes referred to as, as river piracy. One river is pirating the water out of another river. And this creates a, a variability in the system. Instead of simply being a, a, a simple balance between rock uplift and river erosion, we now have parts of the system that are able to keep up with that rock uplift, and we have other parts of the river system that are not able to. And these areas that are not able to keep up with the rock uplift then are raised higher and higher in elevation, becoming these high valleys that we see in the region today. Has this not been considered before then in other mountainous areas? The trouble with piracy or with stream capture is that it's very difficult to recognize simply by field observations. For one thing, as soon as the piracy occurs, the rivers quickly erode and try to, to re-equilibrate themselves to their new conditions. So although it's been recognized on an anecdotal level, it's not really been recognized as being a uh, systematic process that might be occurring in a, such a widespread manner. Part of what, part of what we, we did that was new was that we've, we've developed these, these new graphical methods to try to recognize this in the digital topography data that we have. And we, we think that this has been uh, very successful in, in recognizing that these things are, are much more widespread than we thought. So what does this finding mean then for our understanding of the uh, geology of these areas? These have often been used in the geomorphic world to, as, as markers, as indications of recent uplift. And, and people have treated them as having formed at sea level and then been uplifted. And if our theory is correct, then this, this uh, will not always be true. It may well be that these things are forming, that these surfaces are forming in situ and, and cannot be used as passive markers of uplift.
That was Sean Willett talking to Emily Bannum. News time now, and in the studio with me is Chief News Editor Celeste Beaver. Welcome, Celeste. Hi, Kerry. Now, we're talking this week about quite a crazy phenomenon called a man-made earthquake. That seems like a contradiction in terms, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. So Oklahoma has become something of a seismic hotspot in the last few years. In 2014, it had more earthquakes than California. Yeah, the rate of earthquakes has skyrocketed since 2004, when there were hardly any. Um, There are now about 600 a year. And there's some debate about what this is, but the frequency and occurrence of the earthquakes correlates with uh, the injection of wastewater from oil operations in the state into underground rock. So most people think that's the cause. Does Oklahoma have a particularly high proportion of these kinds of projects going on where people are, you know, drilling for oil and gas, that sort of thing that could cause quakes like this? So there are these oil and gas operations that are going on there and it's a very specific process where there's oil and gas deep underground um, mixed with salt water. The whole thing gets sucked out, the oil and gas get extracted and then the salt water gets re-injected into really, really deep absorbent rock. When that rock absorbs the water, um, it puts stress and pressure on the underlying basement rock, which is where the faults are. And that can cause a fault to rupture and create an earthquake. And I suppose people, most importantly, Oklahomans, are, uh, are wondering how much damage this, this kind of process might cause um, by, by prompting these kinds of quakes. I mean, are they dangerous? Yeah, they could be. The biggest earthquake ever recorded in Oklahoma was magnitude 5.6, uh, which is pretty big. That happened near the town of Prague in 2011. There's a 30% chance of another one of that magnitude happening in the next year. There's also uh, big storage facilities that store oil in the state that may not be very well protected against um, these kind of earthquakes because they're such a new phenomenon in the state. So this week, there's a big meeting at the Seismological Society of America to discuss, it's called induced seismicity, that's what the scientists call it. Um, And one of the things they'll be talking about is how to mitigate against it, armed with a kind of knowledge of why these are or are these artificial quakes different to the natural variety. Are these man-made quakes any different from natural quakes, perhaps? I mean, how much people know about how they form and what causes them? So this is one of the things that people are really starting to study. And there's a bit of a race on right now to try and understand what is going on in Oklahoma. Um, One of the more interesting experiments that one group of scientists is hoping to do is to actually induce one of these earthquakes themselves. Um, So they want to go to a really remote corner of the state, um, inject some water really deep down and see if they can create an earthquake as kind of the ultimate proof that they understand how these things work. That sounds kind of bonkers, but at least they're doing it in a remote corner. I mean, is this something that geologists do a lot? I thought they just studied earthquakes as they happened. Yeah, my understanding is it would be pretty unusual, but not completely unprecedented. Most of the basic physics understanding of these artificial quakes is based on a similar experiment that happened in the 1970s, where they injected different amounts of water and correlated the resulting seismicity with that. And once they know what causes it, I mean, people who live in the state and and elsewhere with similar problems are going to want to know how this can be mitigated against. I mean... Do we just stop all of these projects? Do we try and build buildings that can resist seismicity? It's starting to do a couple of things. There are now buffer zones around the sites where earthquakes of magnitude 4 or greater have happened. And there's now extra scrutiny of anyone who wants to build one of these disposal wells in that area. 
But meanwhile, it's kind of really, for the people of Oklahoma, it's such a change in such a short space of time. It's sort of literally rocked their worlds. I mean, these are people who basically didn't tend to experience earthquakes. And now, almost every day, they'll see stuff on the walls of their home shaking. Wow. As you say, kind of an un- not unprecedented, but certainly very unusual. Um, Celeste, thank you. There is more on the Oklahoma quake situation at nature.com slash news from our reporter, Alexandra Witsey. And we're on Twitter at Nature News. That's all from us. Tune in next time where we meet a weird dinosaur smaller than a chicken, but much more mysterious. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. 